Every time I come to the end of a series, it's always bittersweet for me because it's like saying goodbye to an old friend. And we come to the end of our study in John 15 and 16. And today, we'll just examine the very last verse of John 16, verse 33. And so it was a few months ago, we embarked on a study that we called Costly Christianity to examine the very clear biblical precedent that salvation in Christ is fully by faith alone, grace alone, in Christ alone, and that while salvation costs you nothing, being a Christian costs you everything. That to say, I'm a Christian, but to be in the faith made 0% difference in my life, that's really completely foreign to what the Bible teaches about genuine saving faith. And the theme verse, which we've reminded ourselves of often, is Luke 14, 33. Jesus said, so therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. And the the context of that verse was the fact that Jesus had said in the strongest possible terms that following him costs you. There is a cost. You must be willing to be rejected by your family. You must be willing to die with Christ, to be counted dead to the world. This is what he meant when he said in Luke 14, 27, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me, cannot be my disciple. Remember, the original listeners to Jesus' sermon, they didn't have a metaphorical or a symbolic idea of what it meant to take up your cross. To take up your cross only meant one thing. It meant you were on your way to your own death. You were on your way to go out to die. And so Jesus said then in Luke 14, 28, count the cost. And in case anyone was doubtful that this is what Jesus meant in our second message in this series, if you recall, we went through every book in the New Testament to prove that salvation is the free gift of God. You can do nothing to merit God's favor, and yet following Christ costs you everything. And every message in John 15 and 16 has outlined one of these costs of following Christ. But now we come to the very end of Jesus' farewell address to his disciples and In this address, he's been giving great encouragement and he also has given very sobering truths about the disciples' immediate future as well. But he ends on this really amazing note of encouragement. Our singular verse this morning, verse 33 of chapter 16. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Speaking of this particular verse, Martin Luther wrote his protege and friend who's 14 years younger than him, Philip Melanchthon. Luther wrote to Melanchthon, he said, Such a saying as this is worthy to be carried from Rome to Jerusalem upon one's knees. And his point was that the fact that Christ has overcome the world, this is the grand finale, this is the victorious finish to the ministry of Christ, and to stay true to the text, I want to make that grand finale the last half of our message this morning. Because we've been saying for 14 messages now that there is a cost to following Christ, but we want to finish this series on the high note of the glorious promise that there is a reward for following Christ, rewards which make the costs absolutely pale in comparison. So this morning, I simply want to look, first of all, one final time, at the cost of following Christ. And then we want to finish up by looking at the reward of following Christ. The cost of following Christ and the reward of following Christ. 
First, the cost of following Christ. And this is primarily to rehearse where we've been. This may be my final opportunity to get these truths deeply into your heart. Jesus says in the beginning of verse 33, I have said these things to you. These things. He's speaking of his entire farewell address going all the way back to chapter 14. And we'll get to that as a final reminder of the cost of following Christ. But I think it's important for us right now to solidify our understanding one last time of the dangers of easy believism or free grace theology. This movement which is so pervasive in evangelicalism. It's one of the most common perversions of the gospel in existence today. That was the whole point of this series in the first place. In our opening messages, or message rather, I gave you seven affirmations of biblical salvation with ample scriptural support for each. And I want to just rehearse those with you one more time. This is biblical salvation. The first affirmation is that salvation is by faith alone, through grace alone, not by works. Not by works. We affirm and fully cherish Titus 3, 5. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. We made a second affirmation that part of the gift of faith includes the gift of repentance. Part of the gift of faith includes the gift of repentance. Acts eleven eighteen. When they heard these things, they fell silent. They glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. It is a gift. It is a part of faith. Repentance is the changing of your mind about your sin, which therefore results in a change of behavior as well. Luke 3.8, we're commanded, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. We also affirmed, third, salvation is God's work and lasts forever. Salvation is God's work and lasts forever. Salvation is a monergistic, a one work of God and God alone. Ephesians 2 says you were dead in your trespasses and sins and you were made alive by God in Christ. We may stumble, we may fail, we, we will, however, persevere. Anyone who turns away from Christ was never in Christ. We had a fourth affirmation. We said genuine faith will produce a changed life. Genuine faith will produce a changed life. Romans 6 verse 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. This is not speaking of sinless perfection at all. We are still in our mortal bodies, but there is a definite observable change over the course of time, and it should be growing. We also said, fifth, that salvation is a singular package. Salvation is a singular package. Genuine faith is not just a get-out-of-hell card. It encompasses not just the judicial parts of salvation, that is justification and adoption, but the transformative parts of salvation that change who you are. Second Peter 1.3, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. It's a singular package. We made a sixth affirmation. Genuine faith requires total surrender to Christ as Lord. Genuine faith requires total surrender to Christ as Lord. Our surrender to the Lordship and control of Christ, listen, isn't a subsequent part of salvation. That is salvation. And this surrender implies total loyalty, total allegiance, total obedience based in your great love for Christ as your Lord. 
Jesus put it very simply, John 14, verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. There's no such thing as a Christian who doesn't love Christ. Therefore, there is no such thing as a Christian who doesn't strive to obey Christ. And we made one final affirmation of biblical salvation. An unwillingness to obey Christ indicates false faith. An unwillingness to obey Christ indicates a false faith. Titus 1 verse 16, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. We also highlighted the hallmarks of easy believism or free grace theology. There were four of them. We said faith is defined as being convinced that Jesus guarantees eternal life to all who believe him for it. Let me put it this way. Intellectual assent is enough. That's what free grace would say. That you only have to believe that Jesus is the Savior. There's no connection to anything other than the mind. Now that doesn't sound too bad except... The second part of free grace is that faith does not include sorrow for sin. It does not include turning away from sin. And it does not include submission to the Lordship of Christ. In other words, saving faith has no connection to a changed life. Oh, oh, a changed life is certainly viewed as desirable, but it's also viewed as optional. They would also affirm third that assurance of salvation is based solely on looking back on a moment of conversion. That your assurance is based solely on an historical note. That on this day, I said I believe in Jesus. And that's it. That if your life hasn't changed at all, if you're disobeying Christ in every possible way, if you're living an utterly fruitless and useless life, you should still be assured of salvation because you believe you were saved and that's all that counts. And fourth, they would affirm also, that obedience to Christ will not be manifested in every Christian's life. In fact, they would affirm two classes of Christians. There is the fruitful believer and the unfruitful believer. Some Christians will live a completely carnal, self-centered life, yet should still be assured of their salvation. And so obedience to Christ isn't a result of salvation. It's just simply a responsibility of the saved, which you can do or not do. In other words, You can be a Christian and have it cost you nothing. The scripture makes an absolutely vital connection between joy and salvation and your holiness, the the pursuit of obedience. The psalmist in Psalm 45, 7 shows us what a believer looks like. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness. Did you catch that? Holiness and joy are bound up together. They go together. The Apostle Paul said the same thing in the New Testament. Romans 14, verse 17. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. They all go together. Righteousness, peace, joy. They're not separate entities. In their excellent book on the doctrine of sanctification, Jerry Ragg and Paul Shirley write this. God is as concerned with holiness as he is with forgiveness. The two cannot be divided. No man can survive an encounter with God while still bearing the stain of sin, and no man can enjoy unhindered daily communion with God in this life apart from a vibrant practice of holiness. This is why every aspect of our glorious salvation is aimed at holiness in Christ. Holiness is not an addendum to the gospel. It is at the heart of the gospel. The great Puritan John Owen 
said, quote, Holiness is nothing but the implanting, writing, and living out of the gospel in our own souls. Speaking of the Puritans, we should point out that free grace theology bears no resemblance to the theology of the Puritans or the reformers who came before them. The Reformation of the 16th century reclaimed the biblical idea of justification by faith alone, but the faith which justifies, listen, it's faith alone, but the faith which justifies is never alone. It's accompanied then by sanctification, the, the bearing of spiritual fruit in the life of the truly converted. John Calvin, the formula of Concord of 1576, which is the original Lutheran doctrine, the 39 articles of the Church of England of 1571, the Westminster Confession of Faith of 1646, the New Hampshire Baptist Confession of 1833, John Wesley in the 18th century, all of them, and that's just a sample, held the salvation by faith alone, which is intertwined with repentance and a subsequent striving toward loving obedience. And by the way, you would literally not be able to find one Puritan writer who would agree with the free grace position because the Puritans connected faith and life at the hip, and rightly so. And so, because free grace theology has become so popular, it's given rise to some common practices in preaching. What I'm about to describe to you is the common practice of the average evangelical church in America. Four rules for preaching. Don't include a call to repentance in a gospel presentation because that's adding works to faith. Don't say, you should repent, you should turn from your sin. Instead, say, Jesus wants to be your friend. Another rule, give assurance of salvation to people even who deny the faith since at one time they made the profession of faith. That I should tell you as a 45-year-old, oh, when you were four, you said you believe in Jesus, then you should be completely secure in your salvation. They would also say that the preacher should not warn people that persistent sinful conduct may indicate a false salvation experience. Oh, it can't ever mean you're not saved. It might mean that your parents messed you up. It might mean you have issues. It might mean that you need to go see a psychologist. It might mean that you have emotional abandonment issues. But it would never mean that you're unsaved. And they would make the rule, don't give assurance to the very faithful that their faithfulness demonstrates the fruit of salvation. Just the opposite to the one who has been faithful and, and calling upon the name of the Lord and obeying Christ in his workplace, in his family, in his home, in his church. Don't ever tell them, wow, the fruit of salvation is so very evident in your life. That's just backwards. So does following Christ cost you? Well, we've been proving that for the past 14 messages and we observed 12 costs just in John 15 and 16. But I want to hammer one more blow on each of those nails. We looked at the cost of fatherly discipline, that a true Christian dis submits to receive the discipline of his heavenly father. We looked at the cost of committed perseverance, that a true Christian perseveres to the end of his life. There's no such thing as a Christian who doesn't persevere. We looked in John 15, 7 and 8, the cost of fruitful prayer, that a true Christian is praying for spiritual fruit and seeing it happen. We looked at the cost of unconditional obedience, that a true Christian yearns to obey Christ and as such shows that he abides in Christ's love. There is a, there is a desire and a yearning. You don't have to convince a Christian to want to obey Christ. 
We looked at the cost of sacrificial love. A, a true believer in Christ loves beyond anything that the world can even comprehend. We are at our core lovers of others because Christ is. We looked at the cost of gospel mission. A true Christian is vitally concerned for the spread of the gospel. The true Christian looks at the lost and has a broken heart for those who don't know Christ. We looked at the cost of hateful persecution. That the true Christian will bear the hatred, will bear the scorn of others for the sake of following Christ. Oh, how heartbreaking it is for me right over here when we set up our baptistry to have someone come and make a public profession of faith and for me to baptize them and to show you all of their, their public testimony and then to have them say, my family pressured me, I'm going back to where I was. They didn't persevere. They didn't endure the cost of hateful persecution. We looked at the cost of total rejection, that a true Christian will not fall away from the faith even when those closest to him reject him for his faith that you will stand alone if necessary. We looked at the cost of gospel defense, that a true Christian will defend the gospel which convicts the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, that we don't get to alter the gospel. We don't get to present a Christless gospel. We don't get to present a gospel without repentance. We looked at the cost of scriptural loyalty, that a true Christian honors and believes the inerrancy, the authority of Scripture is that which is breathed out by God, that there is no other source of truth. We looked at the cost of current sorrow, that a true Christian understands that this life will be marked by sorrows, but in the cross that sorrow turns to joy. And then we just recently looked at the cost of heartbreaking humbling, that a true Christian receives the humbling given by God's hand, which makes him more and more like Christ. Can I just say this? Biblical Christianity bears no resemblance whatsoever to free grace theology. The costs of following Christ are clear, and they are severe. And so given this sobering news that Jesus has given, why does he now say something a little bit puzzling? He says, I've said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. That seems a little contradictory. That does, all the things I just said, that doesn't sound very peaceful. It's not that everything that he has said is going to give them peace. That hasn't been the result. In fact, John 16, verse 6, but because I said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. In, in Greek, it says, I've really depressed you. You're really down. He's told him he's leaving and you're not going to see me for a long time and they're depressed. And so it's not that Everything he said is going to give them peace. It's that despite everything he said, he will give them peace. Peace isn't the promise of a pain-free, cost-free life. Peace is Christ himself. But while everything he said, not everything he said rather has given them peace, their peace is to be in him. Much of what he has said is intermingled here with these hard sayings of the past several chapters And he tells them how he's going to give them peace. And this is amazing how this is intertwined. All of these hard sayings that he's given them and yet intertwined, listen to all these ways now he's going to give them peace. John 14, 1 through 3, Jesus is going away, but he'll prepare a place in heaven for them. John 14, verse 14, 
Ask anything of the Father in the name of Jesus and it will be done. 14 verse 16, Jesus will ask the Father to send the Helper, the Holy Spirit. He'll dwell with them and be with them and be in them. Chapter 14 verse 18, Jesus said, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. That's another reference to the coming Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ. The very next verse, 14 verse 19, He promises because I live, you also will live. John 14, 26, the Holy Spirit will come and teach them all things, bring to their remembrance everything that Jesus has taught them in three and a half years. The very next verse, John 14, 27, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. John 15, verse 7, if they will abide in Christ, then they can ask for whatever they wish from the Father. The very next verse, 15, verse 8, they will bear much fruit. They will glorify the Father. 15, verse 11, their joy will be full. Verse 15, Jesus has called them his friends. Verse 16, they've been chosen by God. Verse 20, he says that many will listen to them and follow Christ as a result. Chapter 16, verse 1, none of them will fall away regardless of the level of persecution they experience. 16, verse 8, the coming Holy Spirit will plow into the hearts of men through the preaching of these men, the apostles. Chapter 16, verse 13, the Spirit will guide them into all the truth. 16, verse 20, though they will be sorrowful at the departure of Christ, their sorrow will be turned to joy. 16, verse 22, this will be joy which no one can take away from them because it's joy in the Holy Spirit. So many promises of peace. So many promises of joy. Christ himself is their joy, particularly at the coming of the Spirit of Christ at Pentecost. Now, I thought about this this week. Did you ever think about this? When you became a Christian and the Holy Spirit indwelt you, you were introduced to the Lord Jesus Christ. When the apostles were indwelt by the Holy Spirit, they were reunited with the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, of course, their joy will be complete. And did you notice that just like the chapters 14, 15, and 16, here in this final statement of verse 33 of chapter 16, Jesus speaks of peace and trouble in the same breath. In other words, life. Peace and trouble don't negate one another. That's what spiritual warfare is. The peace that we have in Christ daily overcomes the trouble we have in the world. Listen, the the peace that... Jesus is speaking of isn't an absence of trials, but as one preacher put it, quote, it's the inner confidence of the warrior who is weary, thirsty, outnumbered, and wounded, but who fights bravely on, confident of the outcome, assured of the victory. We are saved not from trouble, we are saved in trouble. And so, one last time, we've looked at the cost of following Christ, which is accompanied by peace. Well, we want to finish up our series by looking at the reward of following Christ. Jesus continues, In the world you will have tribulation. In the world, what is the world? Well, in this context, the world very simply is humanity organized apart from God. Humanity organized apart from God, organized against God, and in that world you will have tribulation. If you think that the world is not organized apart from God, walk on any street downtown and just start shouting out, I love Jesus, and see what happens. You're going to be in handcuffs. 
do that in the millennial kingdom, what's going to happen? Everybody will leave their offices and come down and say, I love Jesus too. But we have tribulation. It's a word used in the New Testament to speak of suffering in general. It's used to speak of persecution. It even speaks of trials and suffering associated with the end times. Oh, but what a fantastic ending to the farewell address of Jesus Christ. His final glorious statement, he says with confidence, but take heart, I have overcome the world. He says take heart means have courage, be bold, don't be afraid. And this Greek verb, overcome, I have overcome the world, is constructed in a way that says that he's already accomplished the victory, it's already done. Christ is then 100% certain that he'll be faithful to go to the cross and to be raised from the dead. And here's an irony for you. To the world, the cross will seem like a defeat. But it's through the cross that kingdom victory is now going to be achieved. That the gates to the Garden of Eden, as it were, are thrown open and countless kingdom citizens come pouring in, stepping on the serpent as they come. And through the cross, sin will be defeated. The wickedness of Satan The world is crushed. And now the world is a time bomb set to go off under the judgment of God. Let me put it to you this way. The victory of Christ extends to all who believe Christ and have embraced him by faith. In other words, his victory over death becomes our victory over death. His resurrection becomes our resurrection. His sinlessness becomes our sinlessness. His righteousness becomes our righteousness. His inheritance becomes ours. His future becomes ours. His home becomes ours. And I'm going to show you in a few minutes, his throne becomes ours. This is phenomenal. And evil can no longer harm those who belong to Christ. If you are in this room and you belong to Jesus Christ, you are utterly untouchable. The first ever Gentile evangelist was the demon-possessed man of Mark 5 from whom Jesus cast out thousands of demons. And Jesus commanded him to go tell among his family and friends all that Christ had done for him And he did so in a 10-city region. And if you recall that story, there's kind of a little sad moment. Just a little sad moment. The man, now freed from demonic influence and now saved by the grace of Christ, he said, I want to go with you. I want to go where you go. And Jesus said no. And he sent him out to go to what's called the Decapolis, the 10-city region of Gentiles, to go preach. Why would Jesus send him away? Very simply, because his salvation was sealed and they'll see each other again for all eternity. You will meet that man in heaven. Because once Christ's power and victory is applied to you, evil can never again harm you. The battle is won. What's the worst thing anybody can do to you? They can kill you and I win. I win. And in the end, all the children of God will be safely gathered in our heavenly home because the victory of Christ has now become your victory, your reward. What a tremendous reward for following Christ. And it would be completely appropriate to end our thoughts with those glorious truths to close in prayer. I got to give you one more thing. There is a nuance, a little interesting fact This should catch our attention. In fact, I think it's one of the biggest reasons Jesus said, take heart. And this nuance is the word, I have overcome. 
I have overcome. It's a Greek word which means to conquer, to prevail, to triumph. It's the Greek verb, nikao. You're familiar with the noun form, nike. We transliterate it, nike, which means triumph or victory. Turn with me to 1 John chapter 2 while I explain while you're going there. The use of nikao, conquer, prevail, overcome, triumph. The use of nikao in the New Testament is eye-opening because it relates to the coming victory of all Christians. In fact, it starts slowly. Nikao just kind of trickles into the New Testament. It's only used twice in all four Gospels. It's used once in Luke 11, verse 22, when Jesus uses it. And once here in our verse in John 16, 33, and that's it in all the Gospels. The Apostle Paul wrote nearly half of the entire New Testament. He only uses it twice, two times in the book of Romans, and then he doesn't use it at all in the rest of his letters. And it's not used again until we get to 1 John, written by John, the author of our Gospel. And the use of Nikao now begins to crescendo. It begins to speed up. In 1 John, John uses nikao five times in just five chapters. It's only been used four times in the whole New Testament so far. And in 1 John, the use of nikao tells us just how significant your overcoming, your victory, your triumph, your prevailing, your conquering in Christ actually is. Look with me at 1 John chapter 2. First, in Christ, you have conquered Satan. You've conquered the serpent of old. 1 John 2 Verse 13, I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have, there it is, nikao, overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the father. Next verse, I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have, nikao, overcome the evil one. That is Satan. Satan was the head of all the angels other than God himself, the most glorious being in all of creation. And now, other than God himself, the most powerful being in all creation, and you've won in Christ. What else do we find out? We find out, secondly, that in Christ you've already conquered every deceiver who would try to lead you away from God. You've conquered every deceiver who would try to lead you astray from God. Look in chapter 4 of 1 John. Chapter 4, verse 3. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome. Nikao, you've overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. In Christ, you've conquered Satan. In Christ, you've already conquered every deceiver who might lead you astray from God. Here's a third significance. In Christ, your regeneration, your being born again, guarantees your victory. That's what guarantees your victory. Look with me at chapter 5, verse 4. For everyone who has been born of God, that is regeneration, that is being born again, everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, conquers the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. And so in Christ, you've conquered Satan. In Christ, you've already conquered every deceiver. In Christ, your regeneration guarantees your victory. 
And one more significance to your overcoming, your trust in Christ as the Son of God has guaranteed your victory. Your trust in Christ as the Son of God is guaranteed. The very next verse, chapter 5, verse 5, who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? And by the way, you may have caught this, you're an astute bunch. You have the seal of the Trinity upon you as well. Those last three passages explain this. Chapter 4, verse 4, you are from God, that is the Father, and have overcome them. Chapter 5, verse 4, everyone who has been born of God, that is the regeneration given by the Holy Spirit, overcomes the world. Chapter 5, verse 5, the one who overcomes has believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. God the Father, God the Spirit, God the Son, all actively involved in your coming victory. But listen, the crescendo of Nikao doesn't end in 1 John. We see it trickle in in the Gospel of Luke one time, one time in John, twice in all of Paul's writings, five times in John. Now, where might you imagine the greatest concentration of conquering, of victory, of overcoming will be? Well, of course, it's the book of Revelation, the consummation of all the redemptive plan of God. In Revelation alone, we see Nikao 17 times. And listen, now the war is on. Or as they say now, it's game on. Sometimes Nikao references the temporary victory of evil. Revelation 6 verse 2 pictures Antichrist. And he came out conquering and to conquer Nikao twice. Revelation 11 pictures two witnesses for the Lord Jesus Christ in Jerusalem proclaiming the gospel during the great tribulation. Revelation 11, verse 7, when they had finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make more war on them and conquer them and kill them. Revelation 13, verse 7, pictures Antichrist, the beast, being given temporary dominion over new believers in Christ. And it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. But Jesus Christ... The Lamb of God, He will have the last word. He will have the final victory. Revelation 7, verse 14, They will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will nikao. The Lamb will conquer them. For He is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those with Him are called and chosen and faithful. Well, that's great. Christ will conquer. But what are we finding out? That because He conquers, so do we. And we who are called and chosen and faithful... What's our reward as expressed by Nikao? Well, Jesus himself lists seven of them. Turn with me to Revelation 2. Revelation chapter 2, we get seven rewards, really with some sub-rewards along with it. It's extensive. This is the special revelation given to the Apostle John at the end of his life about 60 years or so after Jesus has now ascended into heaven, and Jesus gives specific evaluations and instructions to seven specific churches, and in each case, he makes promises to overcomers, to conquerors, to the true believers who persevere in the faith. Chapter 2, verse 7, to the church at Ephesus, Jesus promises, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who conquers, Nikao, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Who is him who conquers? It's the one who turns out to be a true believer. 
We're called to persevere in the faith, and we do so because we are regenerate, because we are new creations in Christ. And what is granted to us? To eat of the tree of life. This is looking ahead to Revelation chapter 22, the tree of life in the new Jerusalem, on the new earth, in the new heavens, that you will be among those enjoying the glory of new Jerusalem. And we hear about this in Revelation 22. I'll just read it. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it and the servants will worship Him. This is nothing less than a glorified, upgraded Garden of Eden in the New Jerusalem. It's Garden of Eden 2 million point oh. To the church at Smyrna, Jesus promises in Revelation 2 verse 11. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers, Nikao, will not be hurt by the second death. You will not be hurt by the second death. What is that? That is the eternal or ultimate death beyond physical death for the unsaved. Second death does not speak of annihilation. The Bible never says that God annihilates the wicked. All humanity lives forever. But the second death speaks of the conscious torment of eternal hell as recorded in Revelation 20. The first death is not ultimate. For you and me, it will later be swallowed up in victory 1 Corinthians 15, verse 54, there's an old saying, born twice, die once. Born once, die twice. You will not be hurt by the second death. In Revelation 2, verse 17, Jesus promises the church at Pergamum. He who has an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, Nikao, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Oh, this is so rich. This, this right here, this verse is worth the price of admission today. The hidden manna. Well, what is manna, first of all? Well, manna is symbolic of God's miraculous provision. Manna was given by God to Israel to provide for them. In fact, in the Ark of the Covenant was a pot of manna that was, that was kept in there as a reminder of God's love and provision for Israel. And in that Ark of the Covenant, we see an earthly picture of the real Ark of the Covenant, which is in heaven. Hebrews 9, 23 and 24 tells us this. And we have this confirmed in Revelation 11, verse 19. Then God's temple in heaven was opened and the Ark of His covenant was seen within His temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. So what is the hidden manna? I can say with full authority that I have no idea whatsoever. There's no clear answer. Certainly Christ called Himself the bread of life, the true manna. But what's the context of the hidden manna? What have we seen so far in the Nikao passages, the conquer passages? Each of the promises to the overcomer so far have been things to expect in your future life with Christ. In other words, the hidden manna is someplace that you don't have access to now, but you will. There's an element of mystery to this. There's an element of surprise. Just like the Israelites were surprised when this delicious food 
started falling from the sky. You know what manna means? It means, what is it? It's a surprise. The delights and the glories of heaven await you. What about this white stone with a new name written on it for each individual believer and no one knows this name except the one who receives it? Well, the color white is very, very important in Revelation. A person's righteousness in Christ is is really the top meaning of the color of white. We see white garments in Revelation 3, white robes in Revelation 7, white linen in Revelation 19, God's white throne in Revelation 20. White is very much the color of heaven in many respects. It symbolizes righteousness and purity and holiness. But what about the white stone? There's a lot of theories about the white stones, but there's only one that really the original readers would have understood very easily. White stones were used in the ancient world as an entrance token, as a ticket, as it were, to special events or feasts. You, you didn't go online and print out your ticket from Fandango. You received a white stone, a ticket. So what is the white stone? It's entrance It is entrance into eternal life. And what's on the white stone? Your new name. The new character of the perfected saint. Ostensibly, this is a name that reflects who you now are. A perfected version of yourself. This isn't speaking of a brand new name instead of the old one. It's it's not arbitrary that your name used to be Tim and now it's Oliver. Well, there's no connection there. But it's a name that speaks of a different character. A perfected nature. We've already seen this in the Bible, haven't we? God renamed Abram, Abraham. He renamed Sarai, Sarah. Jesus renamed Simon, Peter, the rock. Sometimes he called him Simon. Sometimes he called him Peter. Sometimes they called him Simon, Peter. All of the saved are getting a new name. That doesn't erase your current name. doesn't erase your current identity. But to demonstrate your new character. What is this white stone with your new name? It's a, it's a heavenly entrance ticket with the name of the new you on it. And only you get to turn it in. In Revelation 2 verse 26, Jesus promises the church at Thyatira. Verse 26, the one who conquers Nikao and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. What is this authority? This is authority, the rule in the millennial kingdom, in the coming kingdom of Christ. The very next verse tells us this. And he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. We were created as a kingdom. We're to be a kingdom under Christ We serve the one true king, and under him the faithful will be given that responsibility. Now, why the rod of iron? Psalm 2 speaks of the Messiah ruling with a rod of iron, meaning he crushes his enemies. Why are we said to rule with a rod of iron? Well, because in the millennial kingdom, there will still be sinners descended from the survivors of the great tribulation, and you will be the means by which society continues to be purified and safe and decent and God-honoring. And I put it this way, every single person in public office serving the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords will be a saved and glorified, resurrected believer in Christ. What a fabulous society that would be. Jesus promises the church at Sardis. Revelation 3, verse 5. 
Revelation 3 verse 5 is promised to the church of Sardis, the one who conquers, Nikao, will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Now the book of life is not a book with the names of Christians who are now being erased as if they're losing their salvation. That's not what he's speaking of. Probably the best idea is that the book of life is a book with the names of all humanity. And as they reject Christ as their Savior, their names are erased. What a glorious promise to the Christian that Christ himself will confess you before the Father and his angels. This is exactly what he already promised. He already promised this. Matthew 10, beginning in verse 32, So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. I don't know if you can fully grasp this, and and I doubt you can because I haven't fully grasped it. I don't think any of us can. That Jesus Christ, the one who eternally existed, the one who was born in Bethlehem, the one who performed countless thousands of miracles, the one who preached the greatest sermons that humanity has ever heard, the one who predicted his own death, the one who predicted his own resurrection and then did it, the one who gloriously ascended into heaven, the one who is even now seated at the right hand of the Father, he will speak your name before God the Father. He will say, My Father, let me introduce you to my friend. And speak your name. That's overwhelming. What a promise. That when you come to your time. And when your last heartbeat happens. And when your last breath happens. You have such confidence. Because God the Son has already spoken your name to the Father. And the only thing left to happen is for Jesus to say. And here he is. That's it. Jesus promises the church of Philadelphia. Chapter 3, verse 12. Chapter 3, verse 12 is promised to the church of Philadelphia, the one who conquers. I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. You're promised to be a pillar in the temple of God. Now, this is a, this is a head scratcher because Revelation 21, 22, and I saw no temple in the city for its temple is the Lord God and the Almighty and the Lamb. What does it mean then if there's no temple that you are a pillar in the temple of God? Well, it means that you don't go somewhere to be with the Lord. You don't go somewhere to worship the Lord. The Lord is the temple. You are the pillar Forever and ever and ever, you will be intimately connected with the God of creation. As the end of 1 Thessalonians 4 says, and so we will be with the Lord always. And look at this ownership. Three times over, God will write on you his new name. He'll write on you the place you belong, New Jerusalem, and the new name of Jesus Christ. I I don't know if we're going to call these heavenly tattoos or what that's going to look like, but it is significant ownership. Three times over. Now, here's an interesting thought. What is Jesus' new name? We don't know, but it seems that it's a name that will encapsulate in one word, in one name, 
all that the scriptures say about Christ, that he is Messiah, that he is king, that he is Lord, that he is the son of God, that he is the holy one of Israel, that he is the high priest, that he is the savior, that he is the redeemer, that he is the counselor, he is the brother, he is the creator, the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, the bright morning star, the righteous one, the king of Israel, the lion of Judah, the king of the Jews, the head of the church, the light of the world, Emmanuel, the capstone, the rock, the firstborn from the dead, the chief shepherd, the prince, the Passover lamb, the horn of salvation, the son of man, the lamb of God, all encapsulated in one magnificent name. And how magnificent is that name that we don't know? Philippians tells us that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Not the name Jesus, but the name, the new name, which belongs to Jesus, and no one has ever heard it. And it's so spectacular that when that name is uttered first by the mouth of God, the name which is imprinted on you, all of creation will fall down in worship of that magnificent name. And you get to bear it. You get to have it for all eternity, marked on you. Jesus promises the church at Laodicea. Revelation 3.21 The one who conquers... I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Oh, there's the connection. Jesus said in John 16, 33, that I have overcome the world. And then we get all the way to the very end that you will conquer just like I did. To the false believers who were fooling themselves in the church, Jesus had said in verse 18, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments, there it is, so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. Now this is very interesting because the city of Laodicea was famous for its manufacture of fine black wool. And yet Jesus said to those who are famous for their manufacture of black cloth, white garments is what you must clothe yourselves in, the the white of righteousness. So what is this speaking of? Revelation 19, 7 and 8, just listen. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. But for those who would bend the knee to Christ, who would come to the cross, who would be an overcomer, Did you see what he said? I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. Fully credited with the righteousness of Christ. I dare any of you to show up to Washington, D.C. and try to make your way into the Oval Office and sit at the president's desk. Any number of creative and probably funny ways you will be stopped before you get there. You know what this says? The very throne room of God is open to you and the Lord Jesus says, come, sit in my seat. The cost of following Christ is high. You've died to self. You've died to all which would be dear to you. But the reward of following Christ is indescribable. You're granted to eat of the tree of life. 
You're not hurt by the second death. You receive the hidden manna of a glorious future, a white stone with your new name, authority over the nations. You're clothed in the white garments of righteousness. You're a pillar in the temple of God. The new name of God is emblazoned on you. The name of New Jerusalem is inscribed on you. The name of Jesus is now decorating you and you are seated on the throne of Jesus Christ. Is it worth it to follow Christ? It is for me. I hope it is for you. In our second message in this series, I offered the words of Billy Graham, the most well-known evangelist of the past century, and there's no doubt as to Graham's love for the Lord and a life which demonstrated his faith, and we all know his ministry was not without its problems. The famous altar calls of his crusades, which could feel more like emotional pressure than a true move of the Holy Spirit, his efforts to embrace everyone led him at times down very concerning ecumenical roads. And he never claimed to be a theologian. People tried to trap him with theological questions. And he said, I'm not a theologian. And he would shy away from that. He wrote over 260 books during his long ministry, but very near the end of his life. His passion and burden was to write a book to clear the muddied waters of the gospel. He wrote, as I approached my 95th birthday, I was burdened to write a book that addressed the epidemic of easy believism. And so a 95-year-old Billy Graham wrote the book called The Reason for My Hope, Salvation, published just a couple of years before his death. And listen to what he wrote. It should not be surprising if people believe easily in a God who makes no demands. But this is not the God of the Bible. Satan has cleverly misled people by whispering that they can believe in Jesus Christ without being changed. But this is the devil's lie. And I am afraid that many Christians in their zeal to share their faith in Christ have made the gospel message too simple. Just to say believe in Christ can produce false assurance of the hope of heaven. Jesus often spoke about the gift of eternal life. To make it clear, he said, count the cost. And to that, we might add, then anticipate the reward. Amen? Let's pray. Our Father, your word is abundantly clear. We would have to make a a decision before we ever opened our Bibles to not see the cost of following Christ in order to miss it. And yet, Lord, the, the cost is high. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Even as we're, when we're baptized, Lord, it symbols, symbolizes that we have died with Christ and we're raised with him and we're seated with him in the heavenly places. The Apostle Peter calls us aliens in a foreign land. We don't belong here anymore. We're strangers to a sinful world. And for that reason, we suffer. We suffer at the hands of those who would persecute. We suffer at the hands even of our own family and friends who don't grasp what it means to follow Christ and who refuse to repent of their own sins. We suffer even in your sovereignty at your hand as you impart to us the fatherly discipline which we so desperately need because you are completely 100% committed to our Christ-likeness and you will not stop until we are transformed from glory unto glory until we are like the image of Christ. 
And so, Lord, I pray for the encouragement of all who are here today who are suffering in any way, shape, or form, particularly for their faith or because of their faith. Help them, Lord, to take the words of our Lord Jesus to heart. To take heart, to be courageous, to be bold. Because he has overcome the world. And because of that, we also are now overcomers. We are conquerors. Lord God, I would pray for each person here. First, those who are uncertain of their standing before Christ, that you would, by the power of the Holy Spirit, regenerate them even now and help them to come by faith to the cross in humble repentance. And for all who profess Christ, Lord, help them by the power of the Spirit to persevere all the way to the end. That we might enjoy a glorious grand reunion around the throne as Jesus Christ, who has named our new name to you, introduces us, as it were, in person for the first time. We thank you and we praise you for the name of Christ and for his sake. Amen.